Isaiah chapter 62. The Bible is like a telescope. If a man looks through his telescope, he sees worlds beyond, you know. I remember when I was a kid, I I remember uh, when I got a telescope and it was from my grandfather. It was, it was, I don't know if it was really a serious telescope, it, but it kind of looked serious. I think it was literally you know, made of brass and had leather, um, and, uh, and it was kind of cool. It felt very kind of pirate to me as a kid, uh, but I used to love to you know, extend it out and look off and see things in the distance as a little kid. But I'll never forget when, um, when one time I think I dropped it and the lens inside of that uh, shattered and, um, and so really it became really good for nothing because uh, the lens was gone and looking through it, well, you just saw a bunch of broken glass. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, but, but I remember having it as sort of an item of decor. I would set it on my shelf there as a little kid in my room because I wanted to keep the telescope. But you know, um, if a man looks through a telescope, he sees worlds beyond, but if he looks at, only at his telescope, all he sees is a telescope. The telescope was meant to be looked through to see something different. And that's the way the Bible is. The Bible, some people look at the Bible and they just go, well, that's a Bible. They just look at a Bible. It's a book of literature uh, or whatever. But what they miss is the Bible is meant to be a tool that we look, it's like a window into the whole other world. What's that other world? The kingdom of God and eternity and our future and the plan of God. Things that we cannot see uh, just with our, you know, as we would say, with the naked eye, you couldn't see it, but with a telescope, man, you can see, see something way off in distant worlds. In the same way, the Bible is this thing that we look through. The Bible was designed to be looked through to see of what that is beyond. And, you know, sadly, most people, I think, look at the Bible uh, and they only see it as some, you know, old, old letter from some Paul the Apostle or some story about some Old Testament dude, but that's not the way we we treat the Bible. And that's why I'm thankful to have people like you tuning in with us on a Wednesday night um, live. Uh, You know, some people are watching the vice presidential debate right now. Um, I would recommend the Bible uh, because you don't have to fact check the Bible. Uh, We have here the truth before us. Now, in Isaiah chapter 62, we have some radical truth. Uh, And this is going to be an interesting night because we're talking, uh, and we have been for some time now, about the millennial kingdom Um, and uh, what's going to happen during that time and how how that millennial kingdom, the word millennium means a thousand. It's speaking of a thousand year period. Now, let me do a quick review, um, uh, the way things are going to unfold as the Bible tells it. Now, um, some of these details people debate on within the Christian church, and, and again, it should be a friendly debate. Um, once in a while, you know, you hear some person respond to uh, one of my teachings, uh, prophecy updates or something, saying the rapture of the church is a, you know, they'll say something like, um, you know, it's a, a doctrine that, that is, uh, you know, uh, not a, you know, essential doctrine that you can't teach the rapture of the church, and they'll call it heresy and stuff. That's, that's stupid. People saying stuff like that, they don't know what heresy really is. Uh, the, the, the discussion on end times uh, and how things are going to unfold, fortunately for us, that should be an in-house friendly discussion within church people. Uh, and we're working on that. And, and the reason why, by the way, that's the friendliest one is because the Bible even says we won't understand until the time gets closer. The closer we get to the end, the more we'll understand. Remember, Daniel was told to seal up the words of this book. Uh, it's not for that time. But the book of Revelation, you know, John was told by the Lord, do not seal up the words of this book. And, and uh, we see as the uh, geopolitics unfold, as the world unfolds, we see all these prophecies that God spoke of unfolding. And that's how we know more of what's happening today in God's plan. So don't be contentious on this issue. Be uh, intelligent and you can talk about it and have friendly debates about those those uh, order of sequence of events. But largely, much of Christianity believes um, that uh, right now we're living in what is called the church age. We talked about dispensationalism last, last week, which I think is a very important thing to understand. But we're living in the church age or this age of grace. We're saved by grace through faith, which I love living in this age. But the next thing on the list of things prophetically could be uh, the rapture of the church. 
Um, that, that's something we should look forward to. The rapture of the church, First Thessalonians chapter four, tells us we which are alive and remain will be caught up and meet him in the air. It's not a coming of Christ. That's the second coming. We'll talk about that in a second. But the taking away, uh, the pulling out of his church, First Thessalonians chapter two, says until that happens, the Antichrist will not be revealed until there's a, a taking away of, of God's uh, people, the church. So the rapture of the church is kind of the next thing that's going to happen, and that's why we live with that sense of eminence, that it can happen at any moment, and we live our lives. I think that's the point. We're supposed to live our lives with that expectation of, of the Lord's return. And by the way, I think Paul and Peter lived with that expectation as well. Um, well, but they were wrong. Nope, they, they were doing exactly what God wanted them to expect and look for the coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, but to occupy until he comes, to live your life and do what you're called to do and serve the Lord until that happens. Um, so really, us believing the rapture could happen at any moment doesn't change what you and I are supposed to be doing right now. Now, by the way, some people I hear critics of this, you know, uh, talk about how um, people who believe in the rapture, they're just trying to escape life, you know. Um, it's like, um, you know, if you, you guys that are in college, I've got this math final exam. Uh, I wish the rapture of the church would happen. Well, uh, <laughs> that would save you from your math exam. Uh, but, but the idea is we're not trying to escape that kind of stuff. What we're escaping and wanting to escape is the wrath of the Lamb. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, we'll talk about the wrath. So the rapture of the church. Now, something that could happen before that, I suppose, is the Ezekiel 38 invasion, Gog, Magog, that is, you know, Russia, Iran, Turkey, and their uh, nations that the Bible says will, in the last days, um, attack Israel. Uh, and that could happen before the rapture. If, it, it might. Uh, it, may happen, it may happen right after. Um, I don't know for sure. And there's different debates on when that uh, is going to happen. And Isaiah 17, the destruction of Damascus, that could be tied in to all that. But uh, really, the thing we look for is the rapture of the church. That's, that's what we're excited about and even praying for. Um, after the rapture of the church, we go up with Christ in heaven. And I would call that the, the honeymoon in heaven. Seven years where we're up with the Lord in heaven, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Meanwhile, back on earth, there's seven years of tribulation. It's, it's a time described thoroughly in the Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is sort of the manual on what's going to happen. Uh, first, you got these seals that are going to be broken off of the scroll of God that's going to unloose uh, all kinds of havoc on the earth. And then after the seals, you got the trumpets. After the trumpets, you got these bowls of wrath, and it's just going to be brutal. Um, in the middle of that seven and a half years, there's a thing called the abomination of desolation, where this antichrist, this coming world leader that will come during the tribulation, after the church is taken out of the way, Second Thessalonians 2 says, then that, that deceiver, that one will come and uh, will be a, a sort of revealed, the Antichrist. So by the way, if somebody's saying, I know who the Antichrist is, nope, he's not gonna be revealed until after the rapture of the church. So anybody who claims to know who the Antichrist is, you can kind of chalk them off as people that maybe been drinking their bathwater a little too much. Um, so watch out for that. Uh, but the Antichrist will come, this world leader, during the seven year period of tribulation, he'll set himself up to be worshiped in Jerusalem in the middle of the tribulation. The abomination of desolation. We'll talk about that tonight a little bit too. And then at the end of the seven-year period, uh, the Jews will, or from the middle to the end, they'll flee to a place in the wilderness of Edom. Uh, many believe it could be Petra uh, where the Jews will flee there in what is today modern-day Jordan. When I go to Israel, I always bring our group over to Petra because it's a chore going across the border from Israel into Jordan, but it's worth it to see ancient Petra. Uh, and its ruins from the Nabataean era is kind of amazing to see that all the, you know, petroglyph or the, pardon me, the carvings of the rock in the sandstone there. And um, uh, it, it's amazing. But futuristically, it could be a place where the Jews will flee to uh, run and hide from this world leader, the Antichrist, who's going to make war against the Jews. Not a big new thing. I mean, how many wacko dictators and leaders through the centuries have tried to kill the Jews? Well, that's going to ultimately happen, <clears throat> uh, and the Jews will flee to the wilderness of Edom and another place uh, called Basra, Petra, Selah, different names for it <clears throat> in that, uh, that region of the world, somewhere over there. Uh, that's going to happen. But when th that comes to almost, uh, you know, annihilation for the Jews, before that happens, 
That's when the second coming of Christ happens. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 talks about Christ's second coming. And it says he'll come with 10,000s of his saints. Who's his saints? Us. We have been robed in righteousness, linen, white linen, the Bible says, we'll be with Christ. And so we'll be raptured up, be with the Lord for seven years. By the way, people that say the rapture is happening at the end of the tribulation, it's, I call that yo-yo theology where you're raptured up and then you come back down. And there's no reason to be raptured. Um, uh, and uh, I don't see the logic in that. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, the idea of seven years, boy, look at the Jewish wedding and the seven days of a Jewish wedding. There's some neat correlations about the rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, we're with the Lord. Meanwhile, the wrath of God is being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world for seven years. But after that, the, the, the seven-year period called the tribulation, then there's the millennial kingdom. That's where Christ returns, rules and reigns from Jerusalem. The Jews will all be gathered into Jerusalem and serve Christ. Um, and they'll be blessed. All of Israel will be saved at that time. Revelation 11, uh, 25 tells us. And, um, <clears throat> and then we will rule and reign during that millennial kingdom. The, the church, Christians who are raptured, we will rule and reign with Christ during that millennial kingdom. Now, if you follow the rest of that out, Satan during that time will be bound up and thrown into a place called the abuso in the Greek or the abyss. And he'll be there for those thousand years for the most part. At the very end of the thousand years, there's a releasing of Satan for a short, short time where people are gonna go after Satan again. And there's a reason for that that I don't have time to go into it, but it has to do with the people who lived and were born during the millennial kingdom to have a, an, a choice, like we had a choice to, to follow the truth or lies, hell or heaven, God or Satan, you know, who, who are you gonna follow? Well, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there's gonna be another option. And sad to say, the Bible sort of indicates that there'll be many who will follow after Satan. After a thousand years of peace and prosperity and blessing, they're gonna just say, no, nope, we're gonna choose Satan. Um, and then at the end of the millennial kingdom, <clears throat> that's where Satan and all the world for all of history that rejected God from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of the end of millennial kingdom will be standing before God in judgment at the great white throne judgment. And it is there where God will take Satan and the demons and those that rejected God and they'll be thrown into a place called Gehenna, which is what we would call hell. Uh, eternal darkness, eternal pain. Uh, it's not a good place. You wanna, don't wanna go there. Uh, the, meanwhile, those of us that followed Christ, after the millennium, the Lord's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth, and we're all gonna live happily ever after. <laughs> that's, that's in a nutshell what the Bible says, how it's gonna unfold. So this section of Isaiah that we're in is talking mostly about that millennial kingdom of the thousand years where Christ returns. When he returns, when the Jews are regathered in Jerusalem, Isaiah, of course, being a Jewish book about from a Jewish guy, from a Jewish perspective before the church even existed, Isaiah is much about really the Jewish uh, existence during the millennial kingdom. The Gentiles are mentioned, uh, thankfully, that's us, uh, but the Jews will be uh, kind of the focal point here of what, what they're gonna do, what's gonna happen during that millennial kingdom. So hopefully you're still with me on this, and, and this is important to know so that you and I aren't tourists when we get there. Hey, what's going on? I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the person that says, well, now here's what Isaiah chapter 62 says when they, when they go, and who's this coming from Basra with his vesture dipped in blood? You'll know. You won't be a tourist. You'll be a tour guide. You'll tell the people, well, this is the thing that Isaiah, you know, chapter 63 tells us about and stuff like that. So hopefully this will help us know how it's all going to unfold. Well, Isaiah chapter 62, um, some people might call this chapter anticipation for the millennium. Uh, that's kind of the way this chapter shakes out. Let's, let's read. It says in verse one, for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth and the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Um, now this is interesting because we're talking about Zion, which is another, another name for Jerusalem. And the language here is similar to what we started with last week, where he talks about, I will not rest until the righteousness goes forth as a lamp uh, or a light burns. Remember verse chapter one, 
pardon me, verse one, chapter 60, where it says, arise and shine for thy light is come. Remember we talked about the, the second coming of Christ is gonna be like the sunrise and it's gonna brighten the world when Christ returns. And that's the same light referred to here in chapter 62, verse one. He'll go forth to righteousness, that's Jesus, as the brightness and the salvation as a lamp that burns. I love how God is of light, Satan is of darkness. Um, if you wanna be a, a, a child of the light, you follow Jesus Christ, believe in Jesus Christ. Um, so it's for Zion's sake, the Lord's not gonna stand still or hold his peace, that's what it says. And the Gentiles will see thy righteousness, that's what it says here. Um, but notice it says, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now, there's a couple things about this. Uh, is God into names? Um, yes, as it turns out. God's very into names. In fact, he's way more into names than we are, I think. Um, we name our children many times arbitrarily just because we like the way it sounds or whatever. But all through the Bible, God naming people, um, it, it, there's even so many examples of where the parents gave a name and then God changed the name. Man, we could talk about, you know, whether it's Abraham and Sarah, who was Abram and Sarai, uh, changed to, you know, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, we could talk about, you know, you know, Paul the apostle, his name was Saul, and the Lord changed his name. Peter was called Cephas or Simon, and now he's called, now he's called Cephas or Peter Rock. Uh, you know, he was, he, he was once Cephas, and now he's Peter. I love, I love that, um, that the Lord is uh, into changing names, and it has to do with who you really are your character, your nature. And um, one of the things the Bible says is you and I will be given new names when we get to heaven. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that because the old name, Brett, it's got stuff tied to it. It's got things, uh, stupid things that I've done that, that is tied to it. I'm, I'm gonna be glad. It's almost like a clean slate and a new name. Uh, people say, Brett, when we get to heaven, will we know each other? Uh, especially with the new name thing, you know? I mean, if the Lord calls you Herkimer, how am I gonna know that Herkimer is Brett? Uh, how do we know that? Um, well, here's the thing. Um, you're not gonna be stupider in heaven uh, than you are on earth. I hope you understand that. <laughs> you, you're gonna be way more understanding of all things uh, when you get to heaven. The Bible says when we see him, we'll be like him. And I think we'll be given a certain knowledge that's gonna go far and beyond anything we know or anything. Now, don't think we're gonna be dumber in heaven and go, who's that? That person's faintly so familiar. Oh, that must've been my wife back in the former life. No. We're gonna, we're gonna know each other, I believe, uh, very well. Um, maybe even as the Lord knows us, which is kind of amazing. Well, who's getting a new name here in chapter uh, 62, verse two? Uh, it's Jerusalem itself, and the Lord's gonna name that. Now, the question is, is he about to name it in the next couple of verses? Is that what he's saying? Or is there even a new name that we've yet to know? And there's debate on that, but let's take a look. It seems like the Lord starts to rename Jerusalem even here, this is the anticipation of maybe the name it's gonna be in the millennial kingdom. Will it still be called Jerusalem? Uh, it's called Jerusalem today, the city of peace, which is interesting because that's not really what it has been traditionally. In fact, you might call Jerusalem the city of war throughout the centuries in this lifetime. But it will be the, the city of peace when the Prince of Peace comes, that's Jesus. Uh, Jerusalem will not be righteous until the king of righteousness is there. You know, no peace in Jerusalem really, no real peace until Jesus comes and rules and reigns. Right now, Jerusalem is in kind of a pseudo state of peace, which is by the way, uh, set up for what the book of Ezekiel says would happen. During a time of seeming peace and safety, which you could argue Israel right now is enjoying that time, right now. They're making uh, peace deals with these Arab nations, UAE and Bahrain, and even the Saudis are kind of entertaining the idea of a peace treaty deal uh, with, uh, with the United States. Uh, under the leadership of, of Donald Trump right now, we've seen Israel signing these peace treaties with, with Arabs. It's, it's unheard of. Last time that happened was the nation Jordan over 25 years ago. Before that, it was long before that with Ar uh, the Arab, uh, well, the e Egyptians, I would say, was the, the last uh, before that. So uh, it's not something that happens all the time. But when Christ comes, there's gonna be a real and lasting peace. I don't trust the peace treaties and the deals that are made today with our uh, you know, government and with the Israelis and the Arabs. I, I don't trust those things. But when Christ comes, there's gonna be an everlasting peace 
from the Prince of Peace. And that's really what this is referring to. So we know that Israel is gonna be there with the the Lord ruling in Jerusalem, but it's gonna get a new name. Let's see what that says there about that. Verse three goes on. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. For thou, uh, thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. By the way, that's how Israel has been for centuries. Um, it's a little hard to see that today because we're watching Israel prosper uh, exponentially. In the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, for sure the last 70 years, um, you know, Israel's been a nation. Um, we've seen Israel just blossom. And that's why I think it's important to know when Jesus said, when you see the fig tree blossom, know that my coming is soon. He talked about that in Matthew 24 and other places that really we know uh, this is a time of the end, perhaps, just because we're seeing Israel sort of come out of desolation and that state of being forsaken. Uh, Read Mark Twain's writings when he traveled for a year in in Israel, I should say, and Jerusalem. And he, at that time, 100 years ago, said it's forsaken and desolate. In fact, he said he's never seen a more forsaken place on the earth as Israel. Today, when you go there, you see lush farmland that the Jews have, you know, resurrected out of the desert. Uh, And that's a fulfilling of Bible prophecy, by the way. So during the millennial kingdom, it's no longer gonna be even close to forsaken or desolate. But middle of verse four, thou shalt be called Hephzibah and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delights in thee and thy land shall be married. Huh? Land, married, Beulah, Um, Hezbollah, what what is Hezbollah? No, not Hezbollah, Hephzibah is what it's called. And your margin might tell you the definition of those place, those names. You know, uh, Hetzibah means my delight or delightful, or, or uh, maybe even my delight is in her, Israel. And then Beulah means married, for the Lord delights in thee and thy land shall be married. Now, this is interesting because those of you that read the whole Bible and understand contextually what the Bible has to say about this, remember, Israel is called the wife of God. But in Old Testament and New Testament days, um, those parts of the dispensation of time, Israel's been an unfaithful wife. Largely, a lot of Jews don't even believe in God now, and they worshiped idols in the days of, you know, Manasseh the king and other kings. They didn't follow the Lord wholly, and finally their eyes would be blinded, the Bible says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it says blindness has happened to Israel. So there's a blindness. Now that's going to be lifted when the rapture of the church happens. Uh, Romans 11, 25, 26, it, it says that. Um, but right now they've largely been forsaken. The land has been in desolate, desolation and they've not been the unfaithful wife. During the millennial kingdom, that's going to be the, one of the biggest changes. The Jews, their eyes will be opened at the very end of the tribulation. They'll see that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jews will go into the millennial kingdom believing and serving the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, um, and that's going to be a glorious day for the Jews. God is not done with the Jews. He has a plan for the Jews. Don't listen to those that say the Jews no longer have any significance for the world or for the future. It's called replacement theology. Watch out. Dangerous teaching. If God forsook the Jews, why wouldn't he forsake you? He should forsake you and me. If he forsook the Jews, why would he do us? Hey, no. The Lord is faithful and his promises are true and he made an everlasting covenant with the Jews. So during the millennial kingdom, we're gonna see God's promises fully realized uh, by the Jewish nation. And uh, they're no longer gonna be called the unfaithful wife, like the book of Hosea sort of teaches us. But he's, he's gonna call them uh, married and that the, the, the bride or the, the groom, the, you know, the, or I should say the husband, Uh, is delighted in her during the millennial kingdom. Now, don't forget, the church is called the bride of Christ in the New Testament. We're the bride of Christ. We're gonna have the marriage feast of the lamb after the tribulation begins. And, uh, but the Jews have a different relationship with God than we do in that they're called the the wife of God and they're gonna be restored and revived in their marriage to God uh, during the millennial kingdom. We see that right here and other places as well, by the way, in the Bible. Verse five, for as a young man married, marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. 
And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Um, I have to say something about verse five that I think is gonna be important and maybe even a little bit controversial. Um, It says here that like a marriage, that is what God's relationship with Israel is gonna be. And the New Testament says like a marriage, that's how Jesus' relationship will be with the church. The problem is, do we know what marriage looks like? Well, yeah, Brett, we're married. I have, a, I have a wife and I have a husband. I know what marriage is. Here's my contention. I think in the modern day, modern era, we don't really know what biblical marriage looks like. And because we have modernized uh, and liberated and you know become self-made men and self-made women and lived our own kind of modern marriages a lot of a lot of countries like Sweden don't they don't even marry anymore nobody marries they just kind of live and make contractual agreements about having children and letting the village raise the child like it's the idea of marriage has gone out the window largely in the world but what does a marriage biblically look like i would encourage you to study that cuz because of women's lib especially in the 70s um you know, the, the woman submitting to her husband, that's stupid. Women are better than men. And, you know, today we live in this, you know, uh, culture that pretty much hates men, especially if you're a white male. Uh, you're the worst thing that ever happened uh, to the world. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that our perspective has changed on this quite a bit. Um, but in the Bible, you see this loving relationship between a man and a woman, And the Bible says the man is over the woman and the woman is to submit to the man. Now, does that mean the man treats the woman badly? No. In fact, this is where our marriages look really wacko today too. Men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's that's the most unconditional love. That's the most sacrificial love the world can ever know. The man is supposed to love his wife in a way that is uh, undoable by a sinful man. But uh, with God's help, we, we men, we've got a tall order to say, I'm gonna love my wife as Christ loves me unconditionally, whether I'm good or bad, deserving or undeserving, his love is perfectly steady, immovable, unshakable. And then not only unconditional, but sacrificial. Jesus even dying on the cross for his bride, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ. We're, we're supposed to be that men as a married man giving, dying to ourselves. Man, that's a hard one. We tend to want our own thing and we demand our own way. And I, I should get my way once in a while and you know, and all this. Nope, dying, s- sacrificing. It's, it's the most amazing kind of love that anybody could ever uh, ask for. And that's what the Bible says a marriage is supposed to look like. A husband who loves his wife unconditionally, sacrificially. But the woman is to reverence her husband, Ephesians 5. Read Ephesians 5. The last half of that chapter explains all this, that the wife is to submit to her husband. Now, the word submission doesn't mean to be less than or beaten down or any of that stuff. Um, Submission means to be under the covering of something. Um, So when it rains outside, you submit yourself to your roof, your covering, uh, so that you're not getting wet in the rain. Uh, That's what it means, to be under the covering. And so when a woman is married to a man, she, she's stepping under the leadership and under the covering of the man. And, and for whatever reason, even though our culture doesn't like it, God says the man will be the covering the woman. It's not that she's less than, it's just that she's been given a role of honor, that she's not to be leading and in charge, but she's given honor. It's not that the man's over the woman, it's that he's to cover the woman and that she's to be isolated and insulated from the hailstones and the snow and the rain. And the man's supposed to take those beatings, those hits, and the wife is put in a place of honor. Um, and, and see, this whole idea of everything I'm just talking about, some of you are already, have probably already shut, shut down the YouTube right now and saying, yeah, that guy's a chauvinistic, whatever. But here's the thing, if you wanna know what the Bible says about marriage, it's important. Because during the millennial kingdom, which is gonna be a long time, we're gonna see the way this relationship's supposed to look. I don't think we even know what it looks like today. We see marriages today that are so off and not even close to what the Bible prescribes that I'm wondering if some of us, we may not even recognize the relationship God actually really wants to have with us. Because we have, you know, uh, laid a template after template over the true template of marriage in the Bible. And we've kind of made it up that the woman 
you know, is equal to the man and she should be doing the exact same things. And, and then we've even taken it further that men aren't even important. I remember when, uh, you know, the commercials, you can, you can learn a lot about a culture by its commercials on TV. I remember um, when I was a kid, you know, the, there was this movement where the woman was always at home scrubbing the oven and she was insanely uh, occupied with her mind about the clean, and she had curlers in there and she was crazy scrubbing the oven and commercials were talking to that person. But then they realized, and the man was always kind of look, uh, looking at the woman like, you know, she's crazy. Um, and that was sort of the chauvinistic era that that perhaps was. But then there was a thing where, no, 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 the woman's not the one scrubbing the oven. She's sexy and she's smart and she can have a job and she can bring home the bacon, uh, but also cook it up. And, uh, you know, remember the, what was it? The Anjali woman uh, who could let her man remind her that she's in charge and stuff. And, 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 and she could do all these things. And then it became, the man was stupid. Uh, then all the commercials made the husbands look really dumb. And we're still in that era where pretty much if you see a lot of the commercials, notice how they make the women look really good and the men look stupid. Um, uh, I heard this and it's true. I tried it a, about a year ago where if you go on Google and you search and you put in there, women can, and then see what the suggestions are from Google. Women can deliver babies. Women can have, do anything they want. Women are empowered and women can da da da. And everything's, if you type in Google, and I don't know if they've changed the algorithm now, but a year ago, if you typed in, men can be jerks, be abusive. Men cannot have children. Men are worthless. Like, it, it's, it's really funny how the algorithm tends to go uh, when you search men can and women can. That reflects kind of our culture's um, sort of way right now. Now you say, well, Brett, are you defending yourself and your um, you know, male counterparts, all your friends and stuff? No, I'm just saying God calls himself a man, as it turns out. And Jesus was a man and is a man. Um, I don't agree with these new age wackos who say that God is a woman, mother earth and mother divine and goddess of this and that. No, that's stupid. The Bible says God is a man. Jesus taught us to pray, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God is a man. And so when we diminish the image, part of the image of God, that is man in this, in this anti-man culture that we live, it, I think it hurts our understanding of who God is. No wonder some of our culture and our people say, yeah, I don't know if I like God. I don't know if I want to follow God because of his, you know, misogyny or whatever. Um, that's, that's, that's the worldview today. And because of people's own sin and their own perspectives, they're missing out on the richness of what God would have for our culture and our people today. I would encourage you to try to put all your preconceived notions about what marriage is and put it aside. Even if you've been married 50 years and study the Bible, say, what does the Bible really teach about marriage and the relationship between the man and the woman? And, and forget all the things your college professors taught you about how women can do everything men can do and all this stuff because all of that has sort of hurt the picture that God wants you to see. And here, when we get to the millennial kingdom, that relationship is gonna be restored. All of man and woman's uh, preconceived notions and, and proclivities and angers and, you know, they're just gonna be gone. So I don't know about you, I wanna know what it's gonna look like. And so the way you do that is study the Bible as it relates to biblical marriage. Might do your marriage some good too, if you go back to the old school marriage of the Bible. Um, and again, it's, uh, there's been people that have wrongly taught that women should be under the foot of the man and like a slave and all that, that's ridiculous. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. Take an honest look at what the Bible says about marriage and then you might begin to understand what our relationship with the Lord's gonna be like in the millennial kingdom. Well, all of that out of verse five, we better hustle. Here we go, verse six. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or no night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence and give to him no rest until he establish, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Um, we could talk about who the watchman on the wall would be, but I would make an argument that there are watchmen on the wall today and God has raised up people to be watchmen on the wall saying, hey, Jerusalem might be in ruin now, but it, the, the day is coming when the Lord's gonna rule from Jerusalem and they're, they're not gonna rest and they're not gonna hold their peace until Christ comes and rules from Jerusalem. And I believe that's me. 
And hopefully it's you. We are the watchmen on the wall who know what the Bible says, and we know that this day is coming. And so we're the watchmen on the wall. We're the ones who are alert and searching the scriptures. You know, if you look at a good watchman, a uh, security guard or someone who's, you know, in a tactical situation in the army where you got to be on the lookout, um, alertness. And if something goes down, you got to communicate. You got to communicate with a loud and clear message and say, here's what's going down. Um, that's the watchman on the wall. And what are they supposed to do here? Never hold their peace day nor night. Um, you that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. And that's why I'm not going to be silenced even though some people say, you can't say that about women's lib and about women submitting to their husband. Don't care. I'm going to keep saying it louder and clearer than I can next time uh, because it's important that people know what's coming down and what the Bible says. Even if it's not popular, even if people don't believe you, doesn't matter. The Bible says, keep going, keep not silence and give him no rest. Who? Give who no rest? As it turns out, it seems like the hymn here is Jesus. Give Jesus no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 18, where the unjust judge, Jesus likened himself to the unjust judge. What's that? Well, there's this unjust judge, and this woman goes and says, I've got a problem, I need help. And the unjust unjust judge is like, yeah, whatever. But she goes to him over and over again, and he finally says, because this woman has bugged me so much, I'm going to give her what she wants. And then Jesus makes this point, if that's the unjust judge, and he finally gives the woman, because she keeps continually asking, how much more will the righteous judge in heaven uh, answer the request of those that are his people? So the watchman on the wall is not to be ever tired and never to stop saying, Lord, come quickly. Come and establish your throne in Jerusalem. Come and bring an everlasting righteousness. That's what we should do is never tire from asking and Uh, begging the Lord, Lord, come quickly. Um, That's what the Bible says. The watchman on the wall and his people are those that will never rest uh, until he establishes his his earth, uh, his throne on earth. Verse eight, the Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. That's Jesus, by the way. Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for for the which thou hast labored, but they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. They shall have brought it together. Uh, they that have brought it together shall drink in the courts of my holiness. This is the Jews no longer being attacked by their enemies. They'll be in peace and prosperity and they'll be with the Lord. Verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway gather out of the stones, lift up the standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Jerusalem will be called sought out. People want to be there. They'll want to go there. Um, and it'll be uh, not forsaken as it largely has been in times past. This is a glorious description here, verses 10 through 12, <coughs> of this, um, what the Lord's going to do when the Lord's going to uh, bring the daughter of Zion back to Jerusalem. It's going to be glorious. The Jews uh, back to the city, not forsaken. Well, chapter 63 goes on and says, Who is this that cometh from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra. This that is glorious in his apparel, apparel, traveling in his greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thy apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden in the wine press alone and of the people there was none with me for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is, mine, is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Wait a minute, we just kind of changed gears here, didn't we? 
Uh, we went from drinking wine, uh, you know, and holiness in the, uh, the verse nine, and eating of the fruit of our labor in the millennial kingdom where there's peace and prosperity to suddenly blood splattering on someone's garment. What's, what's going on here? Well, this is the description, verses one through four, about how Jesus is returning. Like the, it's given us some of the specifics. Um, when will Christ come? He's gonna come, when I gave you the, the timeline of events um, there at the beginning of our study tonight, remember that part where the Jews flee to Basra or Petra or Selah, the Edom, land of Edom? It's all in that same region. That's where the Jews are gonna be hiding. Why does it say, who is this that's coming from Basra with red stained garments? Now, I know the temptation is a good New Testament Christian church person. You're saying, oh, his, his, his garment stained red because he died on the cross for our sins. Nope, it's not what it's saying. His blood is stained with red because of the blood of the enemies of God that he's gonna come and kill. <laughs> now, this is important because uh, I've noticed churches don't like to talk about the, uh, all the essence of who God really is. Um, they leave out things about hell and about God's wrath and his righteousness and holiness. And they just want to be kind of like Joel Osteen, only talk about victory and how God, you know, loves you and wants you to do awesome and uh, awakening the giant within you. And uh, you're going to be amazing and all this stuff. But they never talk about hell, wrath, judgment, righteousness, death, hell. I mean, eternal death and hell is, is important. If it exists, we should be talking about it. If Jesus is coming and he's gonna splatter blood, should you know about that? Well, this is, this is not pulling any punches right here. Isaiah is saying, when Christ the Messiah comes, he's asking rhetorically, who is this that comes from Edom and Basra? Now, why was he in Edom and Basra? I believe it's because, remember the Antichrist is gonna make war with the Jews in Petra, Edom, Basra, Selah, whatever you wanna call it, that region, He's gonna make war with the Jews and Christ is gonna rescue the Jews ultimately when he returns in his second coming. Now there's certain things that you have to think about. Jesus is gonna first come and set his foot down on the Mount of Olives. That's what, it, you know, the same place he ascended into heaven when he said, I will return. Uh, he left from the Mount of Olives. He's gonna to return to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is gonna split in two. And then it seems that Jesus is gonna go re rescue the Jews over in that region where they f fled from, um, from the Antichrist. It's that middle point of the tribulation where the Antichrist say, worship me in the temple of Jerusalem. And the Jews say, uh, we don't do that. We only are worshiping Jehovah, the God of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And they'll realize they've been duped by this world leader and they'll flee to the wilderness. This is what Jesus was talking about, by the way. Keep your finger here in Isaiah 63 and turn to Matthew 24 and I'll show you where Jesus talked about this event. Because when that time comes of the end, the Antichrist uh, is gonna commit uh, the abomination of desolation. That's when he goes into the temple and says, I'm God, worship me. And Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verse 15. When you, uh, speaking to the Jews, uh, therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Uh, Daniel chapter nine, verse 27 tells us about that, by the way. Um, it says, stand in the holy place. When that guy goes and stands in the holy place, the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, if you're reading this, please understand, Jesus says, then let, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. If you're in uh, Israel and you go uh, east, you see the mountains of Moab and Edom, and uh, we'll, we see those. And whenever we go to Israel, when you're standing at the Dead Sea and you look east, there's these huge mountains. That's where they're gonna flee. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything from his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe to them that are with child in that day when they give or nursing uh, in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be such tribulation, great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Um, there's the tribulation period, some of us believe the last three and a half years are called the great tribulation. Um, and that's gonna be even worse. And that's when this antichrist puts the pedal to the metal and says, I'm pretty much God, worship me. The Jews will flee and make war. Daniel tells us about that. Read the rest of the book of Daniel from Daniel nine to chapter 12. It talks about how this antichrist will make war against the Jews. 
and, um, and the Jews will, will be hiding away and the, and the earth's gonna help the Jews. We don't know what that means, but Revelation chapter um, 13 uh, tells us, pardon me, chapter 12 tells us about that. Let me read that to you. Um, it says, when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Uh, long story short, you can go to our study in Revelation to get all this, but that's Israel that brought forth the man-child, the Jews. And to the woman, Israel, were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness in her place for a time, time and a half times. How long is a time, time and a half times? Three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation period. Um, and she'll hide there from the face of the servant, serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood and the woman that he might uh, cause her to be carried away of the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, the Jews, uh, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is, these are the Jews that are gonna see that Jesus is the Messiah in the last part of the tribulation. And what is he gonna do? Make war against those Jews. And just when he's about to destroy the Jews, that's when Christ comes and he's gonna return his foot on the Mount of Olives. I believe he'll make his way to Basra, save the Jews. Uh, and that's where he gets blood spattered all over his vesture. It's the wrath of God being poured out, out upon those nations that are hating the Jews and they're supporting this coming world leader, Antichrist. And it's possible that that is then when he makes his way to the Valley of Armageddon, from Basra to the Valley of Armageddon, where that last battle is fought and seen. Now that description of when Christ comes to that section, I believe that's the Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16 that says this, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Don't confuse the white horse of Revelation 6. Some people do that. The, the guy the riding the horse, the white horse in Revelation 6, that's a poser Messiah. That's the, you know, the, the, um, the one that's trying to look like Jesus, but he's fake. This is the real one in verse 11 of chapter 19. Uh, heaven opened up a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and righteousness doth, doth he judge and make war. His eyes are as a flame of fire on his head, many crowns. And he had a name written on it that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Does that sound familiar? See, this is why I believe Jesus is gonna go to Basra first um, to save the Jews uh, from the being in the wilderness from the, the Antichrist and the, the Satan, and his vesture will be dipped in blood, uh, as it says here, then his, his name, pardon me, and his name is called the Word of God. Remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. Um, that's, that's who this is, Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's who this is. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him, upon white horses, clothed with fine linen, white and clean. Who's that? That's us. We're coming with them. We get to go back with them. When he returns, we'll be with them. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and it will be smiting the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress with the fierceness and the wrath of almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Man, this is gonna be Christ coming in massive, massive power with wrath and judgment. Um, wrath is described all throughout the Bible as part of God's nature, but it's not an unholy wrath. It's a righteous wrath. God doesn't do anything wrong, <clears throat> but it'd be wrong to let sinful humanity go on unpunished, undealt with. And so Christ's wrath is part of his righteousness and his holiness. Let me do a quick, you can jot these scriptures down. Let me do a quick summary of the wrath of God. Numbers 32, 13 it says the Lord's anger was kindled against, kindled against Israel and he made them to wander in the wilderness 40 years until that generation that had done evil was consumed. That's one of the first times in the Bible where we see God pouring out wrath. You know, if you exclude the, the flood, of course, of, of Genesis. Um, the Bible speaks of God's wrath as being stored up. It's, it's accumulating exponentially. Listen to Romans chapter two, verses five through eight. But after thy hardness and the impenitent heart treasurest up thyself, or you know, storing up wrath against the day of wrath, uh, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them 
who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath is for them. Um, man, this is God saying he's gonna store up his wrath. It's piling up and eventually, remember those little water parks that have the bucket, the little kids playing, and the, the bucket's just there filling up silently. But then as the kids are playing, eventually that bucket gets full enough where it tips over and spores, pours out. And it's kind of fun if it's water. But that bowl of wrath is being filled up right now of God. And there's gonna come a tipping point where that wrath will be poured out upon a Christ rejecting sinful world. That's gonna happen in the day of the Lord. That's gonna happen when the tribulation starts. Um, and it speaks of how great his wrath really will be. Zechariah 7 verse 12, Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they did hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts. Um, therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Now, that's the bad news. <laughs> There's wrath coming to those who've rejected Christ, to those who have, you know, lived their lives against God. But I love, you know, what the Lord does. He, 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 he would that no one should perish. The Lord loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, which makes this possible. Romans chapter five, verses eight through 10. Let me read it to you. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood. You see, before he sh sheds the blood of the people of the world that are uh, deserving of his wrath, he shed his own blood to save that very same world that rejected him but they refused. But those of us that follow Christ, what does it say? We will be justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were then reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, the wrath that was meant for you and me was poured out on Christ so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, aren't you thankful we're saved by God's grace through faith? Anyone that wants to be saved can be. The hard-hearted person that says, I reject God and I reject Jesus, they're going to be a part of this wrath, and it's not going to be pretty. The Bible doesn't pull any punches when it comes to God's wrath. It's real, it's the most horrifying thing I can even imagine. And yet people just kind of glibly go on in life saying, yeah, whatever, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're a sinful person deserving of God's wrath and you will be a recipient of God's wrath if you're not saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. How are you saved? You, you repent of your sins. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you change your mind and say, I, I'm gonna follow after God and his word and I'm gonna repent of my sins. So once you repent, you say, okay, I realize I'm a sinful, wrong person. Then you confess and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you accept that gift. Then you're saved, not by your good works. That's why it's important. Repentance does not mean that you have to be good so that you're saved. Nope, he was good, so you are saved. Jesus was the one who did all good things and he died on the cross for your sins. And in so doing, your sins, you became justified, as it says here in our text that we read in Romans, just as if you'd never sinned at all. It's a free gift. Those are the people who are gonna be on the right side of this thing. Uh, we'll be robed in white linen. That comes into play in chapter 63 here pretty quick, so we better keep moving here. Um, so all that to say, uh, man, I love that uh, we know who this is. This is Jesus coming from Basra, having trodden down the wine press and his raiments were covered in blood. Wow, I spent way too much time on that. <laughs> uh, verse five, and I looked and there was none to help and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me and my fury had upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury and I will bring down their strength to the earth. You'll never hear Joel Osteen talk about this verse. <laughs> I'm not just trying to pick on Joel. He, he seems like a nice fella with a mullet, but I'm just saying <laughs> he needs to talk about hell too. And uh, you gotta give the full counsel of God. You shouldn't hide this stuff. This is important 
that uh, the Lord says that the people are going to be uh, crushed because of their rebellion. And uh, that's important. Uh, verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us. Um, see, this is the great part. Now we're going to shift gears. Uh, we went from his wrath. Now we get to talk about his loving kindness. And by the way, um, if you're saying, Brett, you're just a fire and brimstone preacher, poor Joel and all those preachers that are just nice talking about fluffy stuff, be nice to them. Well, you got to understand, I love talking about God's grace too and his, his kindness and his mercy, but you're not going to love God's grace as much as I do if you don't know about what you should have and what you actually deserve, his wrath that's talked about in verse 6. You're not going to appreciate verse 7 until you appreciate verse 6. Verse 7 says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. Um, by the way, the angel of his presence might be also translated angel of the Lord. And it's probably a Christophany or a new, uh, pardon me, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Jesus was with them all through the Old Testament. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. But Jesus is all over the story of the Jews in the Old Testament. The rock that water gushed out when it was stricken, Jesus. First Corinthians 10 tells us that. You know, the Passover feast where uh, the blood of the lamb would be spread over the door so that people wouldn't die, Jesus. I, I could go on and on, and we will as we continue through the Old Testament. So in all their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel, verse nine, of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Well, Brett, that's talking about the Jews. Yep. But remember, Romans 9, 10, and 11 explains how the church, we get to be grafted into the vine of the Jews and we get to be saved by the Jew, Jesus, um, because the Lord saves the Gentiles as well. Verse 10, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name that led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Um, you know, God has done great things for the Jews, leading them through the Red Sea and saving them from the Egyptians. And the Lord says, I will do that. Now in verse 15, we have sort of two requests in, in verse 15 through chapter 64, two simple requests. Uh, the first request that God would be compassionate toward them, verses 15 through 19. Let's look at this. Verse 15, look down from heaven, they're asking the Lord, and behold, from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory, where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer, Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance, the people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine, thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. This is that God would be compassionate toward the Jews who are right now in the state of rebellion. This is sort of from that perspective. Oh Lord, don't, don't wait any longer. Help us to remember you and go back to the sanctuary of worship. That's what the request is from the prophet Isaiah. And that's where the Jews are now. And uh, someday the Lord will do that. Now, chapter 64 is only 12 more verses. Hang in there, we're almost done. But this is the second request. The first request was verse 15 through 18, that God would be compassionate toward the Jews. But now they're going to ask that God would punish their enemies. We'll see that in, here in verse 60, uh, chapter 64, verses 1 through 7. 
Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melding fire burneth, the fire causes the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. By the way, the Lord destroyed the earth with water, uh, you know, book of Genesis. And he promised he'd never do that again. But if you read, you know, the narrative of Revelation, but also Peter talks about how the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat and fire. And that's what they're asking for. Um, you know, here that the fire, verse 2, causes the waters to boil to make thy main name known, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. That's going to happen. Not while we're here. We're going to be in heaven as a raptured church. Uh, but then it's going to come down. Verse 3, when thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath I seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. And we looked at that on Sunday, the blessings of those who wait and what it means to wait upon the Lord. Verse five, thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness to those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned in those is, uh, is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as unclean thing, as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind has taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us and hath consumed us because of our iniquities. Wow, this is heavy. Um, they're saying, please save us and punish our enemies. But man, we're, 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 full, we're full of iniquity as well. And you almost hear a despair here, but you and I know the end of the story. Now, not to be overly graphic here, but it should be noted that the King James English translations clean this up and say uh, filthy rags. And so you just picture some, you know, rags in the garage with some oil and gasoline on them or something. Um, but this, this, is, uh, this is true. Check it out in the Hebrew text when it says all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. The word filthy rags is as used menstrual cloths. Um, that's, that's, a, that's the image that the Lord uses to describe even our best works. The best things you and I have to the Lord are like um, filthy rags is what it says there. And that's bad news. The good news is, by the way, of what we learned in chapter 61, verse 10, where it says, the Lord has clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness. He takes our filthy rags and he turns them into a robe of righteousness. And that's what God does. Man, I love that. It's what a beautiful thing the Lord does for his people. Um, well, verse eight, but now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou art our potter and we are the work of thy hands. Um, man, I love this because the Bible gives this imagery very much in the, all throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 18, God's gonna tell Jeremiah to go to the potter's house and we'll see that in a few weeks when we get to Jeremiah and I'll talk about the potter and what he has the right to do with his clay. And uh, it's really impacting and huge. And uh, we'll get into that in a few weeks. Verse nine, be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise thee is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Um, this question, the Jews find themselves, are we gonna be like this forever? And the answer is no. The Lord has a plan to restore, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, rule and reign from there. And we'll continue this discussion on the millennial kingdom and what God's plan is next week. So there you have it. We're getting close. A couple more chapters and we'll have Isaiah uh, finished up as Athey Creek study through there. I hope you understand we're only scratching the surface on all this stuff. We could talk for weeks, days on just any one of these single verses. Uh, well, why don't you, Brett? Because we wouldn't be going through the Bible uh, then. Um, we'd be going through the book of Isaiah in our lifetime. And I don't think we could do it fully in our lifetime, which gives us a lot of uh, work to do. 
Uh, I'm trying to get through the Bible in about 15 years. That's, that's our plan. If I go much slower, it's going to be more like 20. So uh, that's why we had to cram in three chapters tonight, but it's good stuff. Hey, let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful uh, for what you're going to do, Lord. It's, um, it's your wrath and your righteousness and your holiness that scares us a little bit to where we kind of say, Lord, we want you. That's why we are called the schoolmaster that drives us. The law is the schoolmaster. The Old Testament drives us to the goodness of your son, Jesus. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace and that you save anyone, anyone, whosoever believes in, in you, your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross and rose from the grave. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, the wrath and the destruction is scary, but your holiness and your kindness overwhelms us. So I pray for the saved tonight that they would be confirmed and comforted. For the unsaved, maybe they be concerned and repentant and accept you and believe so that they also might be saved. But we look forward to that day when you come and make all the wrongs right. When you rule and reign from Jerusalem, Lord, come quickly. Like the watchman on the wall, we will not be silent. And we continue to pray that you'd come soon, Lord. So bless your church. Bless these people who've carved out this time for study tonight. Bless them. May good fruit come into their lives as we close tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.